Welcome to the Personal Injury Podcast from St. John's Chambers. This is a series of podcasts from the barristers within the personal injury team at St. John's Chambers in Bristol. And within the series, we're going to be summarising and offer our insights into new developments in the law and to discuss the implications of key cases in personal injury law. Hello, I'm Patrick West. I'm a personal injury and clinical negligence barrister at St John's Chambers. I'm Rachel Siegel. I'm a barrister in personal injury and clinical negligence. In this episode, we're going to be discussing e-scooters. So Patrick, tell us, are e-scooters legal or illegal? The answer is both. Uh, There are, in fact, two kinds of e-scooters on the roads at the moment. One is allowed to be on the roads. That's the the, the scooters that are part of the uh, government's legal pilot scheme, which is extended now until November of this year. And the others are the privately purchased e-scooters, often bought on the internet. These are not legal at the moment. Many people believe that it's fine to ride a a private e-scooter on the road. Uh, but they are, strictly speaking, only permitted for use on private land, not a public highway. However, the matter is more complicated because the Boris Johnson government, certainly in the Queen's speech in May, indicated its intention to legalise e-scooters generally, on the proviso that they're subject to regulations which would affect their speed, their power and lights, amongst other things. Of course, the details are yet to be worked out, but that seems to be the direction that we're heading in at the moment. Currently, the pilot scheme ones, that's the legal ones, uh, you have to have a provisional or full driving license to take part. They have to be insured. That's something that generally doesn't concern the riders at this stage because the pilot scheme companies are providing the insurance as part of your contract with them. The speed on the higher vehicles that we have, the higher scooters, is 15 and a half miles an hour. There have been some recent calls for that to be reduced if e-scooters are going to become generalised legal vehicles on the road, something like 12 and a half miles an hour. They're not particularly fast vehicles, although you might perceive that if you're a pedestrian. And then one of the other restrictions is geofencing. So some very clever technology has been used to effectively switch off these e-scooters when they get to the limits, the boundaries of the uh, geographical area they're permitted for use within. Those have recently been extended in a few locations, uh, and they're quite cheap, only a few pounds for 15 minutes or so, and you can pay using an app. So they have restrictions, but they're pretty easy to use, and as we're all aware, they are pretty much everywhere. In terms of the legislative background to the pilot scheme, the technical detail is that they're legalised under the Electric Scooter Trials and Traffic Signs, brackets, Coronavirus Regulations and General Directions 2020, and that amended the road vehicles registration and licensing regulations. All of that was coming into force on the 4th of July 2020. Effectively, what it did was add e-scooters to the list of road vehicles under Regulation 4, although at the time it restricted the use of them on the road to e-scooters being used in a trial. So that's the pilot scheme. Uh, Protective headgear was mooted as being a a thing that would be recommended. It's certainly not been made mandatory, and I'm not aware that uh, any of the hire companies have made it a proviso of hiring. And the other measures that have been introduced include uh, an amendment to the Traffic Science Regulations 2016. So that allows e-scooters effectively to have uh, an equivalence to bicycles. They can use cycle lanes, shared spaces where we see these pedestrian and cycle shared pavements. But they are not legal on the ordinary pedestrian-only pavements. The Department of Transport has anticipated that some sort of training would be offered during the pilot scheme. Again, I think that was a triumph of hope over experience and that that hasn't seemed to have materialised. 
they are regulated currently under the pilot scheme. We don't know as yet what regulations will be carried through into any generalised legalisation. So e-scooters that are involved in rental schemes are regulated, as you say, for speed, for power. I know they're also regulated for construction, as we'll come on to when we look at safety. They have to be registered. Regulated also in respect to the age of the rider, isn't it? Sort of 16 plus. Yes, I think that's tied to the provisional licence aspect. And also, they're only supposed to be used by a single rider, no passengers. That's set out explicitly in the contract that the user signs up to by uh, taking out a a hire on on the app. Um, And it also is, is important in terms of the insurance policy, which I think we'll be discussing shortly. There's clearly an awful lot of media backlash. Uh, I read an article last year by Peter Hitchens who described the e-scooter menace leaving chaos and death in its wake. Are we all just getting a bit overexcited or, or are there real road safety issues here? Well, one of the key sources of data to answer that question is the PACT's Parliamentary Advisory Committee for Transport Safety report that was published in March 2022. And although the data sets on which the report is based, well, they carry quite a few health warnings, what they do start to show us is that there are significant issues of safety around e-scooter usage, some of which arises from, for example, the data that we've got on e-scooter related casualties. And also when we bear in mind that between 2019 and In fact, March 2022, when this report was produced, there had been 16 deaths on e-scooters on UK roads that had been reported. My understanding from the PACT report is that they involved the use of private e-scooters and the vast majority, if not all of those deaths, occurred on public roads. So thinking about what you were saying before about the legality of private e-scooters on public roads... Clearly, that's a a very concerning statistic. I'm aware that in 2020, there were 484 reported e-scooter casualties, just under 900 in 2021, so a significant shift. I'm also aware from the PACS report that 38% of recorded UK e-scooter collisions involve what's described as serious injuries, which often includes, for example, traumatic brain injuries. And the way in which these casualties are categorised, there are three categories of injury. There's fatal injury, serious injury and slight injury. Fatal injury speaks for itself, but it includes any cases where a death occurs within 30 days as a result of a crash or collision. A serious injury includes, as I say, traumatic brain injury, fractures, internal injury, severe cuts, crushing, burns, concussion, that kind of thing. But it also can include fatalities that occur more than 30 days after the crash. So we hear about serious injuries, serious casualties that can include eventual fatalities. So it it is a very significant bracket. And we also know that there is the final category of slight injury, which would include things like sprains, whiplash injuries, slight cuts, bit of shock, bruising. But the kind of thing that's likely to require roadside attention And one of the difficulties in really understanding the scale and scope of the problem is that the casualties relating to e-scooter incidents are substantially underreported and a variety of reasons for that. 
One of the reasons is that the prevalence of private e-scooters is very much linked to the number of casualties. We'll come on to that in just a sec. But when you buy a private e-scooter, the vendor of the e-scooter has to tell you that you're not allowed to use the scooter on public roads and also has to tell you that you can only use the e-scooter on private land with the express permission of the landowner. We don't know whether that actually happens, but we know it's supposed to happen, at least in respect of the advice being given. But at least a decent proportion of people who are using private e-scooters and doing so unlawfully don't want to report that they have been on a private e-scooter because they know that it's an offence. And so that's one of the reasons why PACT thinks that the casualties are are underreported. Then we've got issues around the data sources which are police and hospital data. There's no formal process at this point in time for recording e-scooter casualties in most police records. It varies from force to force, apparently, but there isn't a formal process and there certainly isn't a consistent uniform process. And as I said before, all 16 of the UK e-scooter deaths between 2019 and March 2022 were on private e-scooters. The neurosurgeons that have been working with the Parliamentary Advisory Committee for Transport Safety, they've reported that e-scooter head injuries are more like motorcycle head injuries than pedal cycle head injuries. And 25% of casualties involve fractures. And increasing numbers of those fractures are of the type that requires surgery. So with regard to safety of the e-scooters themselves, even with the regulated scooters, the ones that, as you pointed out, are regulated for power and speed and and all the rest of it, there are issues with the stability. We know that surface defects on roads can cause problems. We know that there are issues about balancing on the e-scooter. We know that e-scooters can be unstable at speeds lower than 14 miles per hour. We also know that both acceleration and deceleration cause oscillation or otherwise known as weave, which requires a lot more effort to actually control the e-scooter. So it only takes a moment of lack of concentration or distraction for there to be potentially quite a significant injury caused by collision or some other sort of accident with the e-scooter according to the PACS data arising from the hospital records that they were able to get hold of, 40% of the injuries arising out of e-scooter incidents were facial injuries. One of the metrics of understanding how safe any particular mode of transport is, is the serious injuries per million kilometres travelled by any mode of transport. And Department for Transport data that was reported in 2021 shows that motorcycles are likely to be involved in about three and a half serious injuries per million kilometres travelled. And rental e-scooters, depending on the data that you look at, is between nine and 30 serious injuries per million kilometres travelled. So you can't compare like with like. We know that from the, the nature of the data that is available. But nevertheless, if that's taken on face value, that's quite a significantly higher risk in respect of e-scooter safety compared to motorcycles, which, as we know as personal injury lawyers, are very often involved in in road traffic accident litigation. 
So knowing what we know about safety and knowing what we now know about the regulation or not of private e-scooters compared to the rental e-scooters within the pilot scheme, it's difficult to have a really secure handle on the number of e-scooters circulating in the UK, let alone on on UK public roads. That's because the e-scooters that are private don't have to be registered. But what we can do is look at the the numbers of imported e-scooters over the years. 100,000 in 2019, quarter of a million in 2020, and 550,000 were imported in 2021. So there is a current estimate of there being a quarter of a million of them on UK roads in late 2021. I reckon that that's probably a massive underestimate. They're unregistered, they're unregulated. And so, as I say, we've got absolutely no idea how many are actually in use and how many are actually in use illegally. Patrick, what does this mean for road traffic insurance and insurance cover in respect of e-scooter incidents? I suppose the short answer is, unfortunately, the jury's still out because we're in this grey area at the moment of the pilot scheme operating and private e-scooters not yet being properly legalised for use on the road. In the past, the government has generally taken a fairly hands-off approach to electric vehicles like e-scooters And there is some history there. So if you're as old as me, you'll remember Clive Sinclair. His electric vehicle was the Sinclair C5. It looked a a little bit like a a go-kart for adults. That had an electric motor. It was unfortunately quite a failure. I think all of them broke down on the press launch day. But the issue with insurance there was that in order to encourage the uptake of these vehicles, which the government at the time saw as being uh, progressive, I think, uh, there was no requirement for in- road traffic insurance for the C5. As time went by, we then began to see the um, advent of electrically powered bicycles with an electrically powered motor. They all have a battery attached They're really taking off. So we're seeing sales of those in large numbers. They don't need road traffic insurance either. Both of these came under a categorization which goes right back to the introduction of the Sinclair C5 in 1985. Uh, And they were both classed as electrically assisted pedal cycles or EAPCs. So under the 1983 electrically assisted pedal cycle regulations, The C5 was exempted because it was stated by Parliament that it wasn't a motor vehicle within the meaning of the Road Traffic Act 1988 and therefore required no tax and no insurance. The same categorisation applied to electric bikes. The question, I suppose, is will e-scooters be incorporated into that existing legislative framework of the EAPCs or... Will we be seeing e-scooters incorporated into some new legislation regarding insurance requirements? Grant Shapps, who I think was Transport Secretary at the time of the Queen's speech, had suggested that they would be given their own legal category. So the parliamentary draftsmen will have their work cut out and will need to describe e-scooters in a particular way and specify whether they should or shouldn't have insurance. But... uh, The jury's out on that at the moment, but I think it will be quite hard for the government to justify an insurance requirement such as we see under the pilot scheme for very long, not least because they're really shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted 
because so many, as you rightly point out, e-scooters, which are privately purchased, are out on the roads. And trying to get all those people to buy road traffic insurance might be quite difficult. It might be better that the government recommends regulation at the point of sale of these items so that uh, they control the problem better by enforcing law on retailers and manufacturers. So the current position is, yes, pilot scheme, but is insured. One might find in most of those policies exemptions so that they won't be indemnifying where the rider is on the pavement, uh, if there's drink driving, if there's a pillion passenger and so on. Essentially, most of the aspects of using existing forms of transport that would normally be illegal. Certainly on the pavement, this is uh, something which you can see in the highway code. It's been there for a long time, despite the number of people who ride bicycles on the pavement. Rule 64 says you must not cycle on a pavement. That's the Highways Act 1835, Section 72. And it's still good law. You mustn't uh, carry a passenger either. That's Rule 68 in the highway code. So these will both be issues in in accidents involving e-scooters, even under the pilot scheme. Where we come to the situation currently with someone who, because of those reasons, would be uninsured, we need to look, therefore, at how all of this fits into the the MIB, the Untraced and Uninsured Drivers Agreements. These are the agreements set up by the insurance industry in order to cover people who are the victims of accidents involving untraced or uninsured drivers. And the first point is, well, will e-scooters come under those schemes at all? And in order to do so, they have to meet the definition under Section 151C of the Road Traffic Act 1988, which is a mechanically propelled vehicle intended or adapted for use on a road or other public place. Certainly under the pilot scheme, one would see the e-scooters coming within that definition. So even where, let's say you're a claimant with an accident uh, where you've been injured by an e-scooter and perhaps the rider was drunk and it's one of the pilot scheme vehicles, or they've got a pillion passenger and something goes wrong there, you still perhaps have the option of pursuing a claim which will then be met by the MIB. The road traffic insurer has contingent liability, of course, under those schemes as the Article 75 insurer, even if they're not liable under the policy, and the extent of their liability mirrors that of the MIB. Where there's a named insurer identified, and that would be pretty straightforward under the pilot scheme, proceedings can only be issued against the MIB who will pass the claim on to the insurer So there's no direct right of action between the claimant and the identified insurer. It's only through their membership of the MIB that liability arises. Clause 3 of the 2015 agreement gives us an idea of the obligations of the MIB. They they have to satisfy an unsatisfied judgment. So effectively, a judgment has to have been given before the MIB's um, liability arises. And there are defences. Certainly, one of the key ones, and there are a range of these, are the proper notice conditions and so on. And it's very important if you're a claimant in this situation that you do check all of the potential defences and requirements of the scheme because they are specific. But one of the key ones, which I think is, is very relevant to what we're talking about, is where the claimant knew or ought to have known that the vehicle they were travelling in was stolen or uninsured. So under the pilot scheme, if you've got let's say, a passenger who is injured on the back of one of these e-scooters being ridden under the pilot scheme. And let's say that the the driver of this e-scooter is drunk. This is going to raise some of the familiar issues, if you've dealt with MIB claims before, which have already been dealt with by the case law. So let's say we, we have that scenario 
and the passenger knew that, say, her boyfriend, who was riding the scooter, was drunk, that is going to be a problem. The key case law there is a, a fairly long-standing case, White and White, 2001, citations UK HL9, uh, and the All England reporting citing is 2001 to All ER43. What that says is that knowledge by a passenger that a driver is uninsured is either from actual knowledge, so the fact that they've discussed it, <laughs> or the passenger having information from which they drew a conclusion that the driver might well not be insured, but deliberately refrain from asking questions lest their suspicions should be confirmed. There's quite a a heavy burden there on a a claimant to demonstrate that they have no idea at all that this e-scooter they're on that causes the accident wasn't insured. In that scenario, though, Patrick, there shouldn't be a passenger, should they? Because I mean, the Department for Transport, their definition of powered transporters is as lightweight transport vehicles, which transport one person, not two people, not three drunken idiots, but one person. That's another example of something that seems to be, in respect of e-scooters, fairly untested. Another one might be looking at this question of whether or not if somebody is riding a private e-scooter on public roads, which we know they shouldn't be doing. We know that's that's illegal. But whether by virtue of it being unregulated and unchecked in respect of all the elements we were talking about earlier on, it can still be construed as a mechanically propelled vehicle intended or adapted for use on roads. There could well be some arguments around whether or not in those circumstances an unregulated private e-scooter that is not actually safe for use on roads, that isn't properly fully adapted for use on roads, either in respect of its construction, its power, its speed, whether that could still be construed as a mechanically propelled vehicle, but intended or adapted for use on roads. Yes, I suppose it might be. Yes, that might well then pose some difficult legal issues about uh, the nature of its design, how it's been sold and so on. So if you're a solicitor getting ready to accept e-scooter claims, Rachel, what sort of advice would you give about being prepared at this stage? I'd say that there are a series of questions that you'd need to consider really quite carefully. Firstly, was the e-scooter a private e-scooter or was it a rental e-scooter? Secondly, did the accident occur and was the e-scooter being used on private land? And if it was on private land... Was that with the landowner's express permission? And was it with the private e-scooter owner's express permission? Thirdly, if it's a rental e-scooter, was the rider correctly registered? Because sometimes we're hearing more and more anecdotally that people are using other people's vehicle license, driving licenses to access the e-scooter. Were they or are they using the rental e-scooter correctly? So the example that you were talking about before with somebody riding behind a drunken boyfriend on one of these e-scooters, that isn't correct usage. Then the next question, of course, is, again, assuming, I suppose, at this point that it was before November 2022 when these private schemes are going to end and when the temporary legislation, in theory, comes to an end, but whether or not they were abiding by the highway code at the time. You know, if you're weaving around and just generally using the e-scooter in a dangerous manner, there are questions there too in respect of liability. What's the location of the accident? Were there any insurance extensions? I mean, you were talking 
about insurance, absolutely, that is an area where there are still lots and lots of question marks because although the e-scooter providers on the rental schemes have to have liability insurance in the case that a user causes injury or damage to property or to a third party while they're using that scooter, not all providers of the rental e-scooters can be assumed to provide any insurance in respect of injury to the person actually renting the e-scooter. So there are some I've looked at where they say, oh yes, we cover injury or damage to property to a third party while the scooter is being operated. But if you should suffer an accident whilst using the scooter, or if you've been involved in an accident involving one of our scooters, please contact us so we can assist you. So it's not clear what it is that actually is covered, if anything at all, in respect of injury to the person actually riding the e-scooter. Interestingly, the PACS data also showed, and and I do recommend the March 22 report that PACS provided. It's a long report, but it's a really good one. It's really comprehensive and there's a lot of very interesting insights within it. But one of the things that it pointed out is that there are plenty of accidents that occur that only involve the person riding the e-scooter and the e-scooter itself. So is there any insurance cover there? Is there any scope for litigation? Well, probably not or possibly not. And then you've also got issues about private e-scooter usage on private land as distinct from public roads. That picture has changed quite radically recently when the Motor Vehicles Compulsory Insurance Act of 2022 got royal assent. That only happened within the last couple of months. And what it basically means is that if you are injured by a mechanically propelled vehicle intended or adapted for use on roads on private land, the Motor Insurers Bureau no longer has any obligation to cover the rider's liability. It used to be the case that we could look at European law, as you know, we could look at the case of Vinuk, the Slovenian farm worker. You could look at that and say, oh, well, the MIB would be the ones putting their hands in their pockets. Well, no, that's no longer the case. So it means, in in essence, that Vinuk is no longer good law. It can't be assumed that the person that you'd be suing in those circumstances would be backed at all. And you could well be suing a straw man. And that's obviously going to be a hiding to nothing. So these are all things that should be taken into account. Claimant solicitor would be asking these questions from the outset. And so would defendant solicitor, just to be clear about where the potential defences might be. So one obvious potential defence could well be ex terpi causa, depending on the particular circumstances by which Uh, the particular vehicle is being used, how it's being used, where it's being used, and what type of vehicle it is. And of course, not to be befuddled by the Latin, that's essentially where the cause of action arises out of an illegal act, isn't it? Yes, thank you. (laughs) And there's a whole raft of case law, as you know, related to the application of that principle to that doctrine. It is something that ought to be taken into account, both on the part of claimant and defendant lawyers. A lot of things to think about. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you very much for listening to the Personal Injury Pod. In upcoming episodes, we'll be looking into the Animals Act, fundamental dishonesty, surveillance, and the law surrounding material contribution in clinical negligence cases. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about St. John's Chambers or to get in touch with us, go to stjohnschambers.co.uk.